0: Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. Uh, Today on Bad and Bitchy Briefing, we are talking to Harsha Walia, author, activist, uh, all-around badass. Um, If you haven't read her book, Border and Rule, I suggest that you uh, get out there and get a copy and read it. It's brilliant. I've read passages, Harsha, so I know it's brilliant. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) So we are having her on to talk about the closure of Roxanne Road and the global migration crisis and how they connect and um, how just a a multitude of factors are working together to displace people that present as refugees to Canada. So welcome Harsha.
1: Erica, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and it's always to be, it's such a pleasure to always be in conversation with you and to be around your brilliant orbit. So thank you for having me.
0: Oh, the feeling is very much mutual. So, um, Let's talk about the news, uh, the closure of Roxham Road. This has been a political lightning rod for years, I would say since about 2017. And just to give you a little bit of background, so Roxham Road is a rural road from the former hamlet of Perry Mills in the town of Champlain, New York, United States, north to the vicinity of the former hamlet, of Bogton in the municipality of Saint Bernard de la Colle, Quebec, Canada. It's approximately fifty kilometers south of Montreal. Mm-hmm. Now um because of and we'll get into it uh certain policies like uh the safe third country mm-hmm. agreement it states that a refugee must claim refugee as refugee status or claim asylum in the first safe country they encounter. Now, this is all quite convenient because most likely refugees will be coming from, or asylum seekers will be coming from the south of the Western Hemisphere up to the north. So it shields Canada from a lot of the migration patterns that the southern U.S. has encountered, I would say. That's why it's become a political lightning rod. Um, The Conservatives claim that these people are illegal uh, because of law in, I believe it's the custom tax legislation. And whereas Immigration and the Refugee Protection Act, I don't believe, has that terminology. So, there is a little bit of background. Arsha, let's start with why Roxham Road has been such a lightning rod in mm-hmm. Canadian politics for the last about six years, six, seven years.
1: Yeah, thank you for that um, introduction. Um, and, you know, the Safe Third Country Agreement, as you highlighted, is basically Canada's border wall, right? It is a way of ensuring uh, that asylum seekers cannot make it to Canada. Um, it effectively is a fortress. Um, and in fact, when the Liberals first implemented Safe Third Country Agreement in 2004, so it was the Liberals who first implemented it, and it's the Liberals, again, who have expanded it, When it was first implemented, the estimates were that refugee claims were affected by almost 40 percent because that many people were, of course, crossing through the U.S., as you identified. Mm -hmm. Um, I would also add that, you know, this this kind of safe third country agreement um, has various iterations globally as well. So as you noted, um, you know, most people who are coming from this hemisphere are coming from the south. So the safe third country agreement for Canada ends up acting as a fortress. And now, as we know, the United States, including under President Biden, has been implementing very similar policies with Mexico, right? So that now asylum seekers coming from Central America are stuck, as we know, in Mexico, uh, resulting in, you know, their incarceration and devastating disasters like the fire in Juarez that just happened last week. So, Um, All of these kinds of border crises are invented through these kinds of policies. In the EU, we know that there's been so much news about the UK-Rwanda deal, which is a very similar deal, which is that in order to stop migration, uh, particularly from the Sahel regions of Africa, um, the EU is now designating countries like Rwanda as a safe port uh, so that asylum seekers can no longer cross through the Mediterranean uh, into Europe, right? So this kind of, um, idea of stopping asylum seekers or what are called irregular migrants, um, before they even reach the territorial borders of predominantly Western nation states through these policies of declaring safe countries, um, is increasingly very common. And that's what we're seeing. And so Roxham Road kind of fits into, uh, a specifically Canadian narrative of, um, so the way the Safe Third Country Agreement used to operate is that a, the Safe Third Country Agreement applied at um, regular ports of land entry. So for example, if asylum seekers were trying to come through designated ports of entry on land, then the Safe Third Country Agreement applied. So of course, what people started to do was take irregular routes, right? So, Um, It's like it's a feedback loop. It's a really racist, xenophobic feedback loop, because on the one hand, the state creates um, um, impediments and barriers to so-called legal migration by saying, well, if you come through the legal port of entry, then you may effectively be barred because the safe third country agreement applies. Um, So then, of course, people say, well, we're going to try another route. And these routes are um, extra legal. They're also incredibly dangerous. People have died um, trying to take irregular routes, not only around the world, but also in Canada. People have frozen to death. Um, People have um, had their limbs amputated as a result of frostbite, trying to take irregular routes. And so of the many irregular routes, Roxham Road uh, emerged as one of the more uh, common ones through New York State. And so Roxham Road became a flashpoint for conservatives um, to kind of hype up, as you noted, you know, "illegally" quote unquote illegal migration. When again, I would emphasize that illegal migration only exists because illegal migration has been made impossible. Um, so it only exists because it has been made illegal. And so now, the safe third sort of country agreement and shut down has expanded uh, because of this racist, um, xenophobic kind of frenzy around Roxham Road. And I would add it also, you know, it's racist and it also merges very comfortably into capitalist ideas because then, you know, um, a lot of it ends up being like, oh, look, these migrants are stealing, quote unquote, our resources. We're in the midst of a national housing crisis. So instead of blaming or pinpointing the ways in which housing has become a commodity, uh, the ways in which capitalism has, you know, um, made the real estate market into a market and into a market that is the way it is you know we don't have social housing we don't have affordable housing it becomes far too easy to scapegoat and blame a few hundred a few thousand refugees who are also in a housing crisis who also don't have secure housing who also don't have a secure life um, for all of these lack of public services so then uh, in addition to kind of racist xenophobia um, against migrants, we also had provinces like the province of Quebec and like municipalities in Ontario saying that they couldn't bear the quote-unquote social burden um, of irregular migration. So, you know, that's that's the context of, of Rocks and Road.
0: Well, thank you for that. There are many threads from, ex- from everything you said. Uh, I just want to refer... Back to Juarez, which you mentioned, uh, which had a fire in a dormitory at a Mexican immigration detention center in Juarez, left dozens of migrants dead. The effects of the third uh, safe country agreement is this, is hours after a fire breaks out in a dormitory, uh, an immigration detention center, rows of bodies were laid out Because those dormitories are probably overcrowded and they are probably not specified to code, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, whatever code may be. The point is, they're not safe. And the fact is that there seems to be yet another increase in the vitriol against. Mm these migration patterns rather than looking at them as migration patterns. And the quickness, the speed with which we classify their criminality is frankly head-turning. And that is the problem with the language, isn't it? The fact that illegal has supplanted irregular Mm -hmm. as though... Criminality is involved. And let's be honest, let's talk about the race of these people. These We're talking about the global south. Mm-hmm. And the global south that has borne a lot of the negative consequences and the negative externalities of our resource development, mm-hmm. of climate change, and of our political interference. So can you kind of fill in that part of the cycle?
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, as you noted, conversations about migration are deeply asymmetrical, right? Like when we're talking about people on the move, it's not a neutral term in the same way that, you know, crime and law and order are not neutral terms. They are layered particularly they are racially coded, um, amongst other things. They are, as you know, uh, about race, about relations between the so-called North and the South and legacies of imperialism and colonialism and more. Um, You know, because in many ways, we are living in an era of mass mobility. You know, if you think about uh, rich white people with their passports and their, you know, money and their Nexus passes and their yachts and their private jets in the middle of a climate disaster and the COVID pandemic, you know, they're literally traveling or we could say columbus around the world um, all the time at rates that are unprecedented because of, you know, the access to the world, right? Um and it's so it's encouraged, right? It's like that is settler colonialism, that is gentrification, that is pioneering, that is all of those things, you know, that is um, vacations in Hawaii, uh, in Mexico, all of that. It's manifest um, destiny. Yeah, exactly. Doctrine of discovery. Um, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, like, you know, those trends that are historic are continuing, Um So when we're talking about migration, we're talking about a very specific kind of migration that is surveilled, that is racialized, that is criminalized. It is not all people's movement, it is specific people's movement that is criminalized, and hence, you know, the turn to to words like illegal. Um, Because, you know, in BC, for example, until about a decade ago, even from a strictly quote-unquote legal lens, leaving aside, you know, um, the fact that land, this land is occupied... From a strictly colonial legal sense, uh, the vast number of people who were in BC uh, extra legally were American and Australians, white American and Australians who had overstayed their tourist visas, who were working under the table in the tourist in the ski resort industry, um, you know, and in the United States, the largest single nationality of people who are overstays are Canadians who like can't get their paperwork in order. You know, so with those kinds of um, things are just seen as bureaucratic hurdles, right? You never hear those as frameworks of illegality. So these are, yes, deeply racialized um, ideologies. Uh, you know, the work in Canada of Black scholars like Robin Maynard, um, Ronaldo Walcott, Idil Abdullahi, and so many others who also talk about the ways in which globally Uh, anti-migration discourse is fundamentally anti-Black, because um, as they say, you know, Black people on the move has always kind of created a crisis uh, for the nation state, right? Because that is the capture of Black mobility is at the core of anti-Black racial logics. Um, And so that principle of racial governance is key to the border. It's key to how we understand the migration crisis. And we see it beyond this kind of analysis so starkly, um, in the ways in which uh, Ukrainian refugees are talked about and/or welcomed, right all across the globe, in Canada, in Europe, etc., we know all that European uh, in this in this moment, Ukrainian refugees are being welcomed in different ways. Pathways are being opened up, whether it's international students, whether it's refugees, whether it's special permits, um, as it should be. But the reality is, is that is asymmetrical, right? That kind of um, reception or welcome, if you will, which is itself such a weird word, but um, that is not afforded to the people, the vast majority of racialized, low-income people from the Global South.
0: Well, it's not even afforded to um, students and, and scholars and the experts. experts. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote a piece in The Hill Times which talked about um, the African head of the CDC, who was uh, detained at a German border mm-hmm. uh, because he had an African passport. passport, and he was going to he was going to a COVID conference, mm-hmm. right? And and that's become a big problem too, especially after COVID. That a lot of scholars and intellectuals mm-hmm. from Black and Brown countries, the Global South have been detained more often than their white counterparts for showing up at um, conferences, workshop, whatever, meetings, whatever, right? And that's become a huge problem. So who is kept out? And we saw this, and COVID was a huge part of this too, as you saw who, which countries were banned, um, which countries we're not allowed passage mm-hmm. into canada when it is the europeans who took covid like a strain yeah. of covid to africa yeah. um the the one that south uh i think it was omicron actually mm-hmm. and uh even even the the way vaccines are sourced for mm-hmm. example you couldn't get into western countries because if your vaccine wasn't Correct. Mm -hmm. You know? And Mm -hmm. a lot of these events, a lot of these conferences and stuff are are held in Western um institutions. So so it's it's this this fortress has grown. Yeah. To to capture a lot of people Mm -hmm. and based on a racialization and a view to racialization of the world, I would say.
1: Absolutely. And as you noted, completely exacerbated in the context of COVID, right? Because um, COVID became a pretext to crack down on borders. Um, So, you know, in in the height of the pandemic, even though there was no kind of health directive to actually do so, because of course health directives were more focused on um, you know, social distancing and preventative measures uh, like masking. But what happened is over 100 countries actually shut down their borders to asylum seekers um, and continue to maintain that policy. So in the US, we have, you know, what we know of as Title 42 expulsions, where millions of people have literally been turned back at the border um, along deeply racialized lines. Um, and also, then the, the reality of vaccine apartheid, Means that the unequal distribution of vaccines has made it impossible um for people not to not only gain access to life saving vaccines but now has become a pretext to further as you noted deny them access um, uh you know to different places and to to conferences and things like that and so um the ways in which borders are becoming more and more securitized um is, you know, the, the most severe consequences of that are becoming so stark and evident every single day, every single day. You know, like the, the fire in Juarez that we were talking about is one of many disasters every single day. You know, every day you hear about drown- drownings in the Mediterranean. Um, in Canada, last night, six bodies were found in the rivers. Um, on in the territories of Akwesasne between the U.S. and Canada border of six migrants, um, three of whom are carrying Indian passports so far from what they've been able to identify. You know, this is an investigation is currently underway. Um, But, you know, just weeks after Rocks and Roads closure, we now have border deaths uh, at the Canada border as well. So this isn't just a kind of issue on the U.S.-Mexico border or an issue in the Mediterranean. Um, This is very much a global issue with Canada being deeply complicit Um, and, you know, Canada having some of the the worst. And this is, you know, something that when I'm talking to comrades in the U.S. or in Europe, it's really hard for people to get their heads around the fact that Canada has perfected a model of migration, um, whereas one of the reasons that we don't have these kind of visual spectacles of disaster is because we have things like the Safe Third Country Agreement where you use legislation, right? Death by a thousand legislative cuts. Um, And so this is uh, absolutely worsening. And of course, because migration is also intensifying because of climate catastrophe, amongst other things, um, which is also asymmetrical, right? The people who are bearing the greatest brunt of climate change are those who are least responsible for it. And are coming from mostly black and brown dominant countries in the global south, who are farming communities, who are coastal communities, who are communities now impacted by drought and famine and deforestation and land grabbing and so much more and mining and all of these things. Um, and so the ways in which the world is increasingly be- becoming fortified, militarized, and you know the, the kind of Carceral control of people is absolutely intensifying and deeply along racial and gendered, um, and more lines.
0: When Joe Biden visited Canada, mm. um, he and Trudeau reached a deal. Uh, the deal would apply to, first of all, the deal would effectively quote unquote close Roxham road, mm-hmm. uh, but it would also apply the Safe Third Country Agreement across the entire Canada-U.S. border. So one of the implications I guess we could talk about is policing. Mm -hmm. And how are you going to Mm -hmm. enforce this border? Mm -hmm. Or this, sorry, how are you going to enforce the Safe Third Country Agreement? Mm -hmm. Now, you have to have RCMP Mm officers patrolling the entire border, Mm -hmm. which to me is a border wall and using surveillance to do it. So Mm -hmm. um, let's first talk about the implication Mm -hmm. on policing and then we'll get Mm -hmm. to surveillance.
1: Yeah, it's a great question because it's one of those that's completely unclear in the announcement. It's unclear uh, in anything that the federal government has said so far, but absolutely Um, We could safely assume, as you've noted, that um, the enforcement of the Safe Third Country Agreements expansion will only lead to more kind of carceral systems, whether that's the RCMP or whether it's CBSA. Um, You know, it'll basically result in more money for the militarization and the policing and the securitization of the Canada-U.S. border. Um, And you know, the other kind of real human impact is that, you know, again, similar to what we are witnessing in the Mediterranean to what we're witnessing at the southern US Mexico border um, Mm -hmm. is that it will make people um, it will force people to take more and more dangerous routes. And that is not an unintended consequence. I would emphasize this, right? Like, there is a, a policy in um, immigration kind of policy circles called the Doctrine of, of Deterrence. And the Doctrine of Deterrence is basically this, which is make it so hard for migrants to cross that they will not do it. Right. And so the logic is, how do we deter them? That's what they're trying to figure out. How do we deter people from from uh, uh, from embarking on irregular migration routes? And the answer from the state's perspective is death, right? They say if we make the journey so impossible that people see that it is deadly, that will be the deterrence. So death is the intended consequence of policies like the Safe Third Country Agreement. It is not a coincidence. It is not unpredictable. It is the intended consequence by decision-makers to create death of some in order to presumably deter others. So the impact of these kinds of horrific and cruel policies is death. It is an intentional consequence. Again, it is what we are already seeing. Like six bodies were found at the Canada-US border last night, just a week after the closure, not even a week Probably is um, I don't think it's been a full week uh, since the closure of Roxham Road, it is going to intensify the same way that these kinds of border killings are intensifying in the Mediterranean at the u s Mexico border where people are dying, are drowning, are suffocating, um are dehydrating to death, are being found in rivers, are being found in waterways. like these are all intended consequences of the doctrine of deterrence. And so that is what we can expect um with the safe third country
0: agreement. How do you keep track of this border? How do mm-hmm. you keep track of these fortresses? How does one do so?
1: Yeah, and I think I appreciate that question a lot um and the observation that you're sharing because you know, oftentimes it's too easy to think that the border is um, like a singular, like line on a map, right? That the border is is just that one place. Um, but the border uh, is elastic; it can be enforced anywhere, and we see that in a couple different ways. You know, one is the fact that, of course, once you cross the border if you are undocumented or you have precarious immigration status, the border literally follows you. Like CBSA could apprehend you any time. And we see that, right? CBSA can pick people up from a hospital. They can pick people up, kids in schools. Um, And, you know, they've been fights to ensure uh, that public services are accessible to people with precarious immigration status so that, you know, their lack of immigration status is not turned over to CBSA, does not become a pretext for detention and deportation. We know that so many deportations happen because the prison system and policing becomes a pipeline to deportation. So literally the border follows you. If you're a temporary migrant worker, the border follows you. You can be deported at the end of the season when your labor is no longer needed. You know, so um, the border tracks you uh, at all times. You can be deported. You could be detained um, even after you have crossed the so-called border. Um, The other way in which the border moves is these kind of extraterritorial practices that are intensifying so for example like we were talking about earlier where you know the u.s like you know president biden was praised because he said he was no longer going to build trump's border wall right like that was one of the things that so many kind of liberals were like look biden's not going to build trump's border wall
0: okay built it in mexico right like 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 okay uh i have I this is oh my gosh, this is why I always talk about liberals mm. so you, the u s has switched from Trump to Biden, and there's mm-hmm. still kids in cages, and they yeah. are still apprehending children and there's the, like literally nothing has changed, yeah, and yeah, it been three years like nothing has changed, mm-hmm. and that is what I'm saying when mm. when we get too much into these these party politics and the mm. standing culture in politics i i am like yo they're all the same mm-hmm. the only way our the, our immigration system is run for the benefit of owners of capital in canada like that's how it works um for example uh temporary foreign workers that program is horrific uh there was just a story about Jamaican uh my temporary foreign workers, one of whom had died, had written to I believe the Jamaican consulate in Canada mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. about the quote unquote slave like condition yeah. and and Canada has had a history of that um the women the the West Indian domestic scheme, which changed um countries over time. Mm-hmm. Um, the Caribbean to more the Philippines mm-hmm. thing and Southeast Asia uh, mm-hmm. which used to bring in like s- student, like teachers and nurses and stuff to do domestic labor so that white women in Canada yeah. could you know, enter and take power in the workforce. It's all about power. Yeah. And as soon as we start looking at the powerful versus the powerless all of these, these Like political divisions start to soften. Mm, mm -hmm. When I, in terms of the political parties, as you said, 2004, who was in power in 2004? Was it not Paul Martin Mm -hmm. and the Liberals? Oh, Chrétien, I think or Paul Martin. Yeah, can't remember now. Yeah, one of the two. Yeah, I think it would
1: be Chrétien just before, maybe.
0: Yeah, 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 Chrétien. One of them. (laughs) And so I, I think that. That once we start looking at these issues around, you know, the markers of power and the performance of power, you can you can actually see, Okay, well, I'm not surprised. And I was not surprised, by the way, Mm -hmm. that everything stayed the same, because it seems as though, especially with the rise of right wing politics at the far right, that we our policies track further and further and further along that line hmm. So mm-hmm. and also um, I promise I'm going to like get deeper into surveillance. The surveillance state, which has sucked up a lot of capital in the past 20 years in terms of technology and the ability and the apparatus of that absolutely comes from post 9-11 policies mm-hmm. and, of surveilling uh, Muslim immigrants and mm-hmm. people across Western countries. So the rise of the surveillance state, the rise of like and the NSA and post nine eleven politics, the accumulation and the distribution of capital to technologies that support that is not surprising if you really look at it that way. Yeah. So surveillance. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. surveillance will have to be increased, right? Mm-hmm. So we're playing more and more into our surveillance state Mm -hmm. with borders. You need, Mm -hmm. if you have borders, you need to police them. You need to surveil them because borders are all about the preferred in and the undesirable out. That's why we have borders. So anyway, point being um, surveillance technology, AI technology, um, the state's interest in in supporting ai technologies and these these technological innovations so to speak is about growing that state and it's a necessary accessory to a uh, growing police and securitization police state and securitization i probably yeah. took part those words out of your
1: mouth no <laughs> you bad. did because it was brilliant um and I absolutely concur. Like, I, I do think the kind of growing surveillance state is something we should all be paying a lot more attention to um, for a number of reasons. You know, one is the ways in which it um, increases state violence or, you know, it allows the reach of the state to expand. Um, it also allows capitalism to find new markets and ever expanding markets. And also because I think it does something to our humanity in terms of how we respond to state violence. You know, I think a lot about, um, I don't know if this is just me, I often wonder if it's just me, but I think about the fact in, um, you know, how our ability to respond to war, for example, has shifted because we no longer see people on a battlefield. You know, like so much warfare is drone warfare now, Mm -hmm. you know, when we think about, Of course, there is something deeply um, messed up about the fact that, for example, a lot of resistance to the Vietnam War era was because a lot of Americans, for example, saw their soldiers dying, right? Like it was about the impact on American soldiers and not about the actual impact of imperialism. Um, But we can't discount that that is often a big part and has historically been a big part of anti-war movements, right? Which is that we see that war harms many people, disproportionately those who are being bombed. Um, but it hurts many people. But, you know, now the ways in which technology and surveillance means that you don't see, even though the impact is, of course, the same, we don't see it. Um, And there is a kind of, there's two sides to it, right? On the one hand, we don't need to see dehumanization in order to respond, absolutely not. Um, But I think it becomes harder for our mind to comprehend it because it just starts to feel like a fucking video game, right? You're just like, there's literally people in war rooms playing, like, in- enacting war. Like, it's a game. Like, it's horrific what it does to our collective consciousness. Um, and I think about that, you know, as, uh, as, for example, one of the things that Canada is doing is, and because there was such a strong movement against immigration detention, now they're using an electronic bracelet. So it becomes too easy to say, oh, look, we're not detaining people. They're just wearing electronic bracelets. Like they're basically forced to incarcerate their own body. But, you know, we don't understand how that is still a form of incarceration. So um, I think the ways in which surveillance technologies are expanding state violence, are, you know, entrenching capitalism, but are also forcing us to rethink And under how we understand violence, because it is something you said earlier, right? It's just so dystopic to kind of have to metabolize that level of surveillance and violence in one's everyday life. Like, it's just, it's, it's not real. You know, we weren't meant to live like any of this. And we certainly weren't meant to live like this, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it
0: totally makes sense i'm wondering if you can this is something that i'm kind of starting to think about um i'm going to shift to just a little bit Mm -hmm. to uh environmental responses or or responses to climate change actually Mm -hmm. and the increased um increasing migration patterns mm-hmm. and how that might might affect migration patterns because I'm thinking about, you know, the need for critical minerals <laughs> for mm-hmm. example like lithium mm-hmm. to make batteries mm-hmm. for electric cars, mm-hmm. electric buses, um, our consumer items, laptops phones mm-hmm. um, friggin airpods you name it mm-hmm. uh, and how the expansion of Technology, what it's done to like mining, and how that results in in increase, um, yeah, migration patterns that we're seeing.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the things that we are seeing is something that scholars call uh, green grabbing, which is that under the guise of um, green technologies and biofuels and, you know, um, replacing fossil fuels, for example, with other kinds of damaging extraction like minerals, Um, we are exacerbating climate catastrophe and hence climate migration. And, you know, most of these minerals, for example, right now, as we know, the Democratic Republic of the Congo is at the epicenter of what are known as blood batteries. Um, and what and previously was at the epicenter of blood and continues to be at the epicenter of the crisis of blood diamonds. Um, and so absolutely the phenomenon of land grabbing, especially um, these kind of eco fascist tendencies, you know, like Europe is so worried about um, and China to a degree has been so worried about food security that they are now land grabbing in other parts of the world to kind of force monocropping. Um, onto other countries, right? So you already have layers of environmental degradation, which we know is happening, and now we have land I, grabbing.
0: I'm sure who the countries that they go to follow along mm-hmm. follow along colonialism lines, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just
1: yeah, and yeah, yeah, and, and and you know, forcing those same kind of colonial capitalist models of development, right? So the idea that instead of actually tending to the climate crisis through real solutions, you know, led by indigenous knowledge and indigenous science led by, you know, rural communities, knowledges of the land, peasant communities, knowledge of the land, coastal communities, knowledges of the land. Um, Instead of those kinds of solutions, we have more liberal, capitalist green techno solutions, like, you know, Elon Musk style stuff um, that, exacerbates the climate crisis and then exactly as you noted is just still along those same lines of extraction and exploitation of colonialism and it's you know long histories
0: and how does that feed into the increased migration if you're talking about yeah. mining uh those critical minerals for example for exactly what we talked about
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we know is that environmental disasters cause mass migration because people's livelihoods are affected. Um, You know, right now, uh, for example, climate-induced disasters are... And so when I'm talking about climate... I'll first say climate-induced disasters are like these mega events, right? Hurricanes, et cetera. And then I'll I'll come back to the kind of extraction type piece questions. Um, Right now, these these climate-induced disasters, these mega events... Um, are are forcing people to, to be displaced at extremely high rates. Oh, it's one person almost every two to three seconds. Um, Someone is being displaced due to a climate-induced disaster in the world. Um, And the rate of um, persecution, the rate of uh, the number of people who flee typically due to political persecution, like that kind of UN definition of what makes one a refugee, which is, you know, you're fleeing political persecution. The rates of people who are being displaced by climate now outpace um, political persecution-based displacements by a ratio of three to one. So all to say, like climate-induced disasters um, wow. have rapidly changed, yeah, the ways in which people are being forced to move. Um, and then, you know, Canada, for example, is home to a majority of the world's mining companies. Uh, a majority of the world's mining companies are headquartered in Canada. Canada is also home to you know mass extraction, like the tar sands. You know, in BC, we're sitting on a lNG carbon bomb. in Ontario, the Ring of Fire, you know, it's, Canada is a resource extractive economy, as we know locally and globally. Um, and these kinds of climate disasters are forcing migration, you know, whether that's within borders, for example, indigenous peoples uh, whose lands are becoming um, destroyed. Uh, whose indigenous lifeways and waterways um and ways of living and harvesting and stewarding are being dramatically impacted cancer rates um you know that phenomenon that we know within Canada if you will is also happening around the world and often by canadian mining companies
0: and also um you know, if you think about political persecution, Mm. uh, and the political, um, power that those mining companies exert all over the world, uh, to, to oppress local populations, a lot Mm -hmm -hmm. of the indigenous populations, especially in, you know, places like South America, in Africa, Mm um, and and how that actually also kind of promotes violence mm. because to enforce your political power, you that you know, you might there are paramilitary squads and stuff like that and mm-hmm. force that power that 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 enact violence on um, yeah. local peasant farmers and stuff like that. So it's mm-hmm. all a cycle is my point. Mm-hmm. And that's all to support mm-hmm. um, extractive mining industries that are headquartered here. Yeah. So yeah. there. So that's another that's another point of migration. I mean, I I could talk to you about this for hours and hours and hours, honestly. And I swear we will at some point <laughs> um, when I hit Vancouver. I know you have to go. Uh, thank you for spending uh, your time with us. Oh, thank you. And thank you for just, you know, letting us your brilliant mind and all those great things. So I we will have you back to talk about border and rule in more depth. Because I think, you know, I'm putting these things together, too, partially because I've read excerpts of it. Mm. And, engaging. and, and I'm just like, it's like mind blowing. I remember like three years ago or four, four years ago, I was like, mind blowing, mind blowing, mind blowing. So I, um you, so I, 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 you were on my list because I would love to have you come in and talk about that in a more fulsome way. So have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. I'm so glad you've had a chill day. I hope this conversation
1: it was Uh, kept up see how it flowed very nicely.
0: this is yeah I thank you harsha now some admin you guys uh bad and bitchy will be taking some time off for easter where we are gonna we're going to play around with some some things regarding the podcast And we will relaunch on the week of April 24th. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast, com. You can gift a subscription. We will be just switching up some stuff. But please know that we will continue to be the intersectional feminist voice of politics. specifically women's voice of politics in the Canadian media sphere. So don't worry about that. Um, We are just going to upgrade a little bit. So look out for that. I can't wait for you all to listen to some of our upgrades, see some of our upgrades. I'm super excited about the new designs. So make sure you check us out. All right. To everybody, uh, happy Easter. I hope you take some time off as we will be doing. And we'll see you back near near the end of April. Bye.